World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream, but what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. From London, I'm your host, Jason Palmer. And in New York, I'm John Fassman. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. The inflation-driven cost-of-living crunch is particularly acute in Britain. We visit a London food bank to see how the very things that are getting pricier faster hit the poor disproportionately. And California's population has grown tenfold over the past century, making it America's most populous state. But in recent years, its population has been declining, leading some to wonder if the days of California dreaming are coming to an end. First up, though. Today's Victory Day celebrations in Moscow haven't been as dramatic as was feared weeks and months ago. The anniversary of Russia's defeat of the Nazis during the Second World War has, under President Vladimir Putin, become a show of strength. There were the usual trappings, ceremonial gunfire, a parade, and a speech from Mr. Putin. But he didn't announce new fronts in the special military operation in Ukraine. He said that soldiers were fighting for their motherland and claimed the state would take care of families of the fallen. What will really be bothering the state is depleted military hardware. There was less of it than usual on Red Square today. When an air display was cancelled, Kremlin officials blamed the weather. Both Russia's and Ukraine's armies are struggling to keep adequately armed. And for America, there are serious historical echoes. The people of Europe who are defending themselves do not ask us to do their fighting. They ask us for the implements of war, which will enable them to fight for their liberty and our security. In the early part of the Second World War, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt saw America's role as an armory to Allied powers. In one of his fireside chat radio broadcasts in 1940, he told the audience that the effort was ultimately in America's interests. We must be the great arsenal of democracy. For us, this is an emergency as serious as war itself. Now, with Ukraine fighting its war using American arms, President Joe Biden has echoed Roosevelt's phrase. And, and we know that the United States is leading our allies and partners around the world. During World War II, 
The United States is known as the arsenal of democracy. But wars tend to consume more weapons and kit than anyone anticipates, and the conditions behind America's production boom in 1940 just aren't around anymore. America has spent, in all, almost as much as everyone else put together, both in terms of armaments and in terms of financial aid. Anton LaGuardia is The Economist's diplomatic editor. And the latest aid package requested by the Biden administration runs to $33 billion. That includes American deployments in Europe, it includes weapons for allies, includes things like food aid. And this is all in the name of helping Ukraine win, but also in the name of keeping America out of direct conflict in the war against Russia. And how are these being sourced? Is, is this a matter of ramping up production of these things, or is America dipping into its stockpile? Well, it has definitely dug into the stockpiles. Most of these weapons don't suddenly come rolling off a production line. They are in stock and they have been sent over. But the bigger question is, as the war goes on, can industry increase production, not only to arm Ukraine, but also to arm the allies who are themselves spending a lot more money? And third of all, to help America replenish its increasingly depleted armory. And so what's the effect of that depleted armory, of having fewer weapons in the arsenal of democracy? This is an important question. Members of the administration are asked about it in Congress. And I spoke to Kathleen Hicks, the U.S. Deputy Defense Secretary, who says that American forces will rely on new types of weapon systems in future conflicts. The United States can give Javelin and Stinger in part because the way in which we conceptualize our fight for the future and as we prepare even for the challenges today are not as reliant on those systems. For Ukraine, we're very focused on what can they use right away, what is easily trained on, what is easily transferred that makes a big meaningful difference on the battlefield. That's not the same as necessarily what the United States needs over the long term. But we know of countries such as Germany, for example, who say they can't supply battle tanks, which is one of the things that the Ukrainians want, because they themselves would run out. Particularly on air-to-ground defense, there's a sense among many experts that Western armies are generally short of these weapon systems, and it takes a long time to roll them out. For decades, the wars the West has fought have involved having complete supremacy in the air. That is different in the context of Ukraine. And also we know from experience that Western armies tend to run out very quickly of precision-guided bombs, which they used extensively in most conflicts in recent decades. In Libya, Britain and France run out within days in the fight against Islamic State in Syria and Iraq. The Americans burned through as much as could be produced in that conflict. And those are relatively limited conflicts in a high-intensity conflict against a bigger power you would assume that munitions would be used even more intensely. But if this is a strategic concern, why can't America just scale up its production? It can, but at what cost and at what time scale? In 1940, when Roosevelt called for a great increase in production, there was a lot of spare capacity in American industry. America was emerging from the Depression, so there was a lot of slack in industry. And then as uh, America was actually attacked in Pearl Harbor and formally entered the war, it stopped production of cars, and all car factories in Detroit in particular were made to produce material for war. Cadillac produced tanks and howitzers, Chrysler made Browning machine guns, and Ford 
applied the Model T production chain technique to rolling out B-24 bombers. So this is a matter of America not having that kind of spare industrial capacity anymore. I mean, what's the thinking on how to get things rolling off production lines again? You can increase staffing, you can have extra shifts of production, but that means finding trained workers that can do these things or can be trained up quickly. I asked Kathleen Hicks what the Pentagon is doing to clear bottlenecks, and she said that she's already holding weekly meetings with bosses of defense firms. So far, we've had really good interactions with industry that have allowed us to identify workforce challenges, supply chain challenges, and then really send that enduring signal, the market signal of what DOD is going to want and need. Like that example. That's the short-term response. The longer-term response uh, has to do with having bigger stockpiles, which is expensive, diversifying suppliers maybe looking for ways of having simpler designs so weapons can be made with modules that can be swapped as they're updated, more plug-and-play type ideas. You could have common standards across alliances. NATO has the same caliber bullet round, which means that a French bullet will fit in an American rifle. If you could do more of that with other weapon systems, that would be a help. And then you can think of joint acquisition as well to try and get economies of scale the problem with all of this, of course, is that defense industries are highly protected. There are symbols of national sovereignty like armies, and nobody is willing to allow much competition in defense uh, and allow the more vulnerable ones to be closed down. Okay, but what if those problems don't end up being addressed? Well, if it's not addressed, it means that Western armies could potentially find themselves short of weapons if they find themselves in a high-end conflict. It also raises questions about the general preparedness of Western armed forces, particularly at a time when there are more jitters about the possibility of a war with China over Taiwan, for example. And there, the systems are different. It's about naval and air warfare, but the Americans need longer-range weapons that can hit Chinese ships at great ranges. And some experts fear that they are too slow in being produced, that America doesn't have enough of them. And it means that a war, if it breaks out, would be more costly. Or you might end up losing the war because you can't bring to bear the sorts of equipment you need. Anton, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you. World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. No matter where you live in the world, if something is for sale, chances are it costs more now than it did a year ago. In many countries, inflation has hit its highest level in decades. In Britain, those inflationary pressures have already triggered a cost-of-living crisis. Prices for everyday essentials are expected to keep rising, and there are fears that the worst of the crisis is yet to come. Wherever you look, things in Britain are getting more expensive. Samaya Keynes is The Economist's Britain economics editor. 
In March, annual inflation was 7%, which is the highest rate it's been in, in 30 years. Incomes just aren't keeping up with that. And, and that means that the UK is seeing the biggest erosion in living standards since records began in the 1950s. So you say wherever you look, things are getting more expensive. What are the biggies? Yeah, the most prominent things have been energy and food. Those are the things that people are really noticing. So filling up a tank of petrol has become a lot more expensive. Household energy bills have increased by a lot. In Britain, there is a cap in the unit price that energy suppliers can charge to households. And in April, that cap rose by 54%, which is a lot. For households paying by direct debit, that means that their monthly costs may have risen by around £60 a month. And so if you're on a lower income, that's really, really painful. The other thing that people have really been noticing is higher food prices. So in March, food was about 6% more expensive than it was the year before. But actually, if you look around, the price increases are fairly broad-based. It's not just food and energy. Services prices are rising as well. Restaurants, mobile phone bills, that kind of thing. This hit is really coming from all directions. And how are people coping with that hit? Yeah, so I just mentioned that rise in energy bills was particularly difficult for poorer households. Now, the price increases affecting the whole income distribution, but because poorer households spend a bigger share of their income on energy, they're actually facing a bigger increase in the prices that they face on average than richer households. So if you're rich, you might think, oh, I'm being squeezed. Should I cut Netflix or Disney Plus? There has been a recent increase in cancellations of streaming services. But for the poorest, you're really making much tougher decisions. You're choosing between heating or or eating. I wanted to talk to someone who is seeing this squeeze at its most acute. I'll take you around. I'll show you the whole thing. I visited Charlotte White, who runs Earlsfield Food Bank in South London. Are you all right, Andrew? Yeah. Yeah? Okay. We were walking around. She was saying hi to everyone. It felt like there was this really tight-knit community. She was telling me about the changes that they've seen and how they used to see people who maybe were receiving the wrong benefit level or were waiting for payments to come through. But now the issue seemed to be more often that people were getting their benefits, they just weren't enough. I mean, the one thing we're seeing more than anything else is that at the moment it's just simply not enough to get through. So you might be on the right benefits, but it just, it's not lasting because of the whole cost of living. Though in the old days, people would come... And what does that general sense that, that a higher proportion of people simply don't have enough mean for Charlotte and, and the food bank? Well, to put it simply, there are more people using the food bank and, and they're using it more frequently. I would say, so now we're regularly hitting 100. This is a very quiet week, but it would still be, I'd say, a very quiet week, this would be 60. I'd say three months ago, a busy week would have been maybe 70, 80, with a quiet being 40, 50. So all all the time, the kind of the ceiling and the floor are changing, if that makes sense. It's not just Um, that there are more people visiting more often. The type of person using the food bank is changing. We used to be down the road pre-pandemic at another place called St John's, which is when I I started as a volunteer. And a lot of our guests were single people. So we might have, you know, typical guests be someone maybe living in a hostel, single man, whatever. Whereas now, I'd say well over 50% easily. I haven't listened to them for ages, but are families. So you can imagine in terms of individuals you're supporting, that that growth is, is probably huge. And so what about for the food bank? Is it able to to cope with that many more people who need it that much more often? 
Yeah, they rely on donations. And it seems that those donations are being affected by what's going on in in the broader economy. That has meant that they've had to cut back on quite a few household staples. Particularly things like toiletries, nappies we're considering cutting out because nappies just end up being so expensive. Um, but then again, our families that need them really need them. So it's, 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 it's really, really tricky. Toiletries, we used to do a lot more. We now just do shampoo, shower gel, toothpaste, um, deodorant. We don't do anything like conditioner. Um, I think this is really where you can start to imagine just how difficult this moment is for a lot of people. If you're already stretched thin and the sources of help that you're relying on are also stretched thin, then you're just really pushing up against the limit of the social safety net. And and the worry is that people are just going to be increasingly falling through. And do you have a sense for how long that social safety net will be stretched this taut? I'd love to say something hopeful and optimistic, but unfortunately, I am really worried that things are going to get worse before they get better. Looking ahead to the autumn, it looks like the energy price cap is going to increase again by a lot. And so you worry that people are going to essentially have to live in cold homes. We know that that is associated with bad health outcomes. You know, this choice between heating and eating becomes really painful and dangerous. And beyond charitable help, like the food banks you've been talking about, is there going to be much government support on offer? It does look like the government will have to intervene in some way if energy prices increase again. And the Chancellor has said that they're watching and waiting. Of course, if you want to do some things, like increase benefits for the poorest, then you need to announce that quite a long time in advance. So things like the state pension or some working age benefits, you need quite a long lead time to increase those. So by leaving it too late, they're narrowing the range of options that they have. Samaya, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. American music history tells us that California is a place of hope and renewal. But now it seems the Golden State isn't quite the draw it once was. So California's population is falling. John Parker is an international correspondent for The Economist. We got some new numbers showing the population was about 400,000 lower than it had been a couple of years ago. It's been falling now for two years. This isn't that surprising. The United States population as a whole is falling But it's surprising for California. It's not that long ago, 1990, when the Californian population was rising by 2.5% a year. 2.5% a year is a really, really strong rise. So we're only a generation on, and now it's falling. To what do you or two demographers attribute this decline? So the big thing is that people are moving out of state. In the last 20 years or so, the state has lost about 3 million people to other parts of the country. Biggest one is people moving from California to Texas. An enormous amount of the change takes place in just four places. The four big cities, Los Angeles, San Jose, San Diego, and San Francisco. Nearly all of it is from there, whereas the inland parts of the state, their population is still going up. So it's the big cities, and that really points you 
to a single cause. And that is the exorbitantly high cost of housing in those places. So people are moving to places where they can afford to buy a house, where they can have a more relaxed life? A couple of years ago, the median house prices in California were of the order of three times higher than median house prices in Texas, and more than double what they were in Arizona. So you get a great deal more space for your buck if you sell a house in California and move to Texas. And this is affecting two groups of people especially. One of people who've lived and worked in California all their lives and have retired, they can sort of swap a uh, two-bedroom house in California for an eight-bedroom house in Texas. The other group, which in some ways is more problematic for California, young couples who want a child can't afford the house that they want to bring their family up in in California. What does this mean for the state's fertility rate? The state's fertility rate is falling. But California is still a relatively young state. And this is judged by something called the median age, which is a, a version of the average age. California is about a year and a half younger than the national average. But that median age is catching up pretty fast in California, and it rose by two years in the 2010s. So the number of people who are over 65 has almost doubled in the last 10 years. That's a lot. So what does all of this mean for the future of California? I mean, I I grew up in the East Coast and always thought of it as a place where you can go and have a nice life, a decent house with with two cars. Is this California dream gone? Yeah, um, I really think it is. California's always had this sense that it's the place where you go to often from other parts of America and like find the future somehow and make good. Traditionally, that's meant, you know, it was youthful. It was a place of people who were born somewhere else. Before 2000, only 40% of adults had been born in the state. That's more like 60% now. So in other words, many, many more Californians were born in California than it used to be the case. And I think that makes a difference somehow to this notion of California as a kind of a migrant paradise, as a place where people go to. It's now a place where people are born. Now, that's not necessarily, doesn't make it worse, right? It's still a place where there's an amazing amount of ethnic diversity. It's one of only two states where there are more Latinos than whites, for example. It's also a place where people are still getting wealthier and the education level's going up, but it's not the old California dream. John, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for inviting me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow.
World peace might feel kind of like a pipe dream. But what if I told you it's not? 2024 will see more than 50 elections around the world. And in some places, peace is actually on the ballot. One reason is because countries in Europe and Latin America have been experimenting with this thing called feminist foreign policy. Because right now, the way that we wage war and peace, it's kind of a boys club. The new season of Things That Go Boom from Inkstick Media and PRX is coming March 18th. Find it wherever you get your podcasts.